This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Alex Pearson. This is On Point. And today on the podcast, we speak with author and professor Derek Allison about bringing school choice to parents in Ontario. Will the pandemic finally break our education system. We'll also talk to Avi Benlolo about the lasting impact COVID-19 will have on our kids because their world, as they know it, is not normal and it won't be going back to normal. And then we're going to talk about a horrifying video circulating on TikTok and why, you know, when someone commits suicide and then decides to stream it, the kids are actually watching it without being warned. And now the video can't be taken down. We'll talk about that and much more. So let's get to it. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you. That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? No more parties. I, I, I just can't stress it enough. I don't want to sound like, uh, you know, some dad lecturing you. I'm just talking to you as a friend, as, as a premier. Don't go to these parties because what affects these school numbers with the cases of COVID is going to be community spread. I, I'll guarantee, I know that's the case, that the higher the community spread is and the higher the numbers in the community, it's going to affect the schools. Yes, indeedy, and the kids are back to class. But COVID cases, they are creeping up. And with community spread, the biggest threat to kids, if we keep this up, class will be canceled before it gets started. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, September 8th. Here we are. Great to be back with you. I had to say that. I think you're supposed to say that every time you come back from vacation. Great to be back at work. I loved I love when I can't sleep until 8 o'clock. Anyway, I had a great time off. I was uh, a much-needed week off. Uh, it just always goes way too fast. You just start to relax at the time when you're like, oh, I got to go back. But here we are back and uh, into kind of the grind of the fall. But, it was, you know, I got to say, we had a great summer. And I think people think that's a bit weird to say. I mean, I know it came with a lot of restrictions. It came with things like no camp, no traveling around. It was, you know, none of those normal summer activities were around. But thank God we had such a nice hot summer. Because it really did give us a chance to catch our breath, regain some sanity. And our our family didn't do anything special. There were no big adventures. But uh, last night, my hubby and I, we just kind of summed it up and said, boy, that was a really nice summer. You know, it was a summer of small pleasures after months of lockdown. So I know it's easy to complain about everything. We have the right to complain about 2020. But the summer, as far as weather was concerned, was, I think, exactly what we need as we head into this other season now of unknowns. And the question I wonder is, you know, are we now into the second wave? But normally on a day like this, you know, when school starts, you know, we'd have breathless reporting on the crush of excited kids going back to school. You know, the parents taking all their first day pictures, school buses not picking up kids, being late. Uh, Those aren't the headlines, though. 
because a lot of kids aren't back. My son does not go back until the 17th. So his never ending holiday just continues. And um, yesterday I got a note from the principal informing parents that after getting everything in, classes scheduled, spacing done, schedules in place, they then learned late Friday night after they've got everything done that the school will get another teacher, which is great news, except that they have to redo all the planning, all the changes to class sizes. So there's all sorts of stuff that that undoes. But nonetheless, it assures that they're going to get it done. But my takeaway is things are fluid, very kind of chaotic uh, in the school systems. So I think we will all be rolling with a whole lot of punches and uh, got to have a lot of patience. But the, pay, you know, the punch that we're dealing with now are these caseloads going up daily. And, you know, yes, we knew phase three would bring more numbers, but it's clear people are not following the rules. And that's why we can't have good things. And that's why today, Christine Elliott, the health minister says, yeah, no more freedom. We did not make this decision lightly. Ontario's business leaders have shown incredible ingenuity and innovation in keeping our public safe. However, we do need to ensure that the progress we've made is not lost. Taking a pause and further reopening at this time will help us to avoid returning to broad-scale closures and shutdowns. Hmm. So look, the bottom line is the key to freedom for us and keeping the kids safe in school is all about keeping community spread low. So we're not going to be seeing any big large gatherings, concerts, any of that kind of stuff, and um, no more adding people to the social circle. Um, but you know, you'll recall back in March, schools got shut down when cases were at 155. And Dr. Williams said earlier this summer that numbers have to stay below 150 cases if we want to control the virus. And so now, over the last couple of days, we've seen these numbers, 190 yesterday, 185 today. They've just been going up, creeping up ever, actually not, but by about 25, 30 cases a day. So I don't know what that means, you know, because if they keep creeping up, does this mean we're going to completely shut down again? Will the schools shut down in the next couple of weeks? Like, are we going to live with this? Here's what Dr. Williams says. We still have containment at hand, yet we see the behavior in certain groups and gathering being less than quality and going out and allowing greater spread in those areas, in those aspects there. So we're in a different part of the epi curve than we were back in March. If we see we're starting to rise rapidly again, when you talk about the second wave, you see that your numbers from your baseline start to go up by three to 400%, then we're gonna to have to make a step at that time. I don't know if you're watching what's going on in um, BC and Alberta. I mean, BC just had uh, another 429 cases, which is a big number. Uh, Alberta over the weekend, another 650 cases. So they're they're creeping up rapidly right now. And certainly for us, the Labor Day weekend is going to be a big test. And we won't have those numbers for a few days. But I know a ton of people who were either at weddings, they went to parties, and they all know, well, we shouldn't be doing this, but you know, hey, folks are tired of this thing, and they're not buying what the folk, the, uh, the experts in charge are selling. And I think because the summer break gave us numbers, remember when they were back like at 30? I mean, they were so low at one point. I think it's lulled a lot of people into this false sense that, yeah, we got this thing behind us. And no, we don't. The curve is no longer flat. 
And if you're like me, I mean, I, I am desperate to get my son into school. I am desperate to get him back into a schedule around his friends. He really wants to go back. He's so excited to see his friends and his teachers show off all his new masks. I got him a really awesome kiss mask. That was one thing we got him into over my holiday was kiss. Finally, I'm like, finally, you listen to rock. I digress. But nonetheless, got him a really cool kiss face mask with bedazzling on it and all the guys. But so he's excited to go back. But then I see the case numbers. And I'm like, oh, they're going up again. And I, I don't, it won't take but one or two cases in a school before people start to freak out, you know, for the unions to lose their mind, which I don't think should be the immediate reaction. And I hope it's not. I think it should be a case by case basis. But I just worry that instead of, you know, learning to live with this thing, the immediate reaction will be shut things down. And I just don't think we have to. I think we, I think we just have to stop going to parties. Stop going to weddings. If you just do your part, then we won't see the numbers go up. But I also think the premier needs to manage expectations. I think he needs to give parents some hard truths and very clear directions so that we have a better chance to be prepared. And I also think we need to be able to prepare the kids because they're the ones impacted. I mean, if we can measure their expectations, it'll reduce the fear and the stress that kids are feeling. But above and beyond, I mean, those in charge have got to start doing their part at the federal level, provincial and municipal. Stop letting plane full of COVID passengers into this country, okay? Throw the book at those breaking the quarantine orders and get your act together on widespread testing and tracing. I mean, it is unbelievable six months into this thing that we have such a patchwork tracing system. It's crazy. What have those in charge been doing all of this time? Well, we got an app. Well, terrific. The only people using the app are in Ontario. It's not a Canada-wide thing. Okay, Beck's making an app. Great. I mean, it's just patchwork here and there, and that's not going to give us accuracy. But something I read today certainly shocks me. I don't know who they're polling for these questions, but, and I, and I think it's important because as the numbers go up, this is going to become part of the conversation. New polling by campaign research, and they're very accurate in their polling, shows 74% support another shutdown. Did they poll anyone outside in the private sector? I know of no one who wants to go back to that hell. In fact, we can't because we will all go broke. Certainly the restaurants and the businesses and the and, and the businesses that have opened up for the last few months, they, they can't take another shutdown. 47% polled say we should roll back to stage two, which would mean no dining in at restaurants or going to gyms. Well, hey, that's easy for you to say if you don't work in the hospitality sector, which employs a massive number of people in this country. But it shouldn't come to that. Just follow the rules. I mean, it's just not the... I would rather just suck it up and wear a mask and not go to a party than, than threaten my neighbor who might own a business that's affected by this. I mean, is it asking that much? Or, or just level with us. Tell us what the expectations should be. Nonetheless, I think the next couple of weeks, couple of months are going to be um, one we need to buckle up for. So we did. We saw our biggest jump in cases since July 24th. But what we're not seeing with it is the death count that we had in the spring. 
Well, as unions play politics over the province's back-to-school plans, and schools, of course, are scrambling to get plans in place, parents have been grappling, you know, for months about keeping their kids in class or keeping them home. And frankly, a lot of parents have just decided to come up with their own education plan, be it online tutoring or maybe creating a pod of kids at home with a teacher hired in. I mean, one thing this pandemic's exposed is that parents need and want education choice. We've talked about it on the show quite a lot. And now it's the time, I think, to take the politics out of our kids' education and give us choice, you know, get the choice uh, for our kids, what we think is the best education for them, instead of what we are told is the best education for them and what we have no choice but to pay for. Derek Allison is a professor uh, emeritus, faculty of education with the University of Western Ontario, and you authored a report for the Fraser Institute called Bringing School Choice to Ontario. And we do have choice, Professor, in this of the public system. You can either go to public, um, you know, Catholic system, or you can fork out $40,000 for the private system. Um, what is school choice and why should parents be more interested in it? Well, I think the first point to make clear, which is not well understood or recognized, is that school choice is recognized as a human right. It was recognized way back in 1948, in the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights, where it clearly says that education is a human right and the parents have got a prior right to choose. And what that means is that uh, across the Western world, particularly in Europe, it is commonplace for parents to be able to choose the school they wish to send their child to and to have the cost of doing so covered out of public taxation money. And why are we so late to this game? Uh, BC, Alberta, Quebec, Saskatchewan, almost every big province actually gives parents a choice. Why is Ontario not um, up to speed with this? Is it simply because it's become too political? I mean, you'll recall John Tory, I mean, he didn't even officially run on it. It was a comment that he said once upon a time, and it was used as a wedge issue by the McGuinty government to make it into an issue of school choice and do we allow parents to choose, and it was blown up, and, it, and the whole issue went away. Yes, that's right. It's been a political uh, football for quite some time. The, the, um, the immediate uh, story began way back in 1984 when you remember Premier Davis extended funding to the senior grades in Catholic um, high schools, which up until that time had been operated as private schools. And when he did that, he also established the Shapiro Commission. Bernie Shapiro was uh, commissioned to look into the broader question of whether Ontario should provide some kind of financial support to other kinds of independent schools. Um, he did a great job. Shapiro produced his report, just over a year, submitted it. But by that time, David Pearson's liberals were in power and they just tabled the report. It's been gathering dust ever since. There have been several legal challenges since then to try and bring school choice to Ontario. None of them succeeded, so much so that it's now quite clear that the only way school choice will come to Ontario is through political action. Now, we did, for one brief shining Camelot moment, have school choice in Ontario. At the tail end of the previous PC government, 
Jim Flannery introduced a equity and education tax credit, which, although it was uh, severely attacked by the opposition liberals and NDP, and of course the teacher unions, both provincial and local, it was passed into law, and for one year it served as law. And that act would have allowed parents to claim back tax credits for a portion of the tuition fees paid to, paid to independent schools. Unfortunately, uh, the PCs lost the 2003 election and the new incoming McGuinty government retroactively repealed the equity education tax credit and slammed the door shut on school choice. You mentioned John Tory. John Tory came along in the 2007 election. He was then leader of the PC party and he advanced a proposal to provide partial funding to faith schools, independent faith schools, and that was essentially doomed from the beginning. It was a very weak proposal and even the uh, even most of the people running faith schools were not in favor of it. It was a bad, a bad proposition. But as you say, it helped him lose the election. He's probably going to lose anyhow. Uh, and we've never had any kind of realistic opportunity to bring back school choice to Ontario. Now, one would think that the current Ford government would have had school choice toward the top of its list of priorities. But apparently it was more interested in providing um, funding to help support uh, choice, parental choice for childcare. That was the CARE Act, which passed in the previous budget. And that provides a tax credit to parents. Uh, choosing a childcare provider of their choice seems strange that we couldn't extend that up into the K-12 school system, particularly well, I, as it will be relatively straightforward to do just to reenact the equity and educational tax credit. Right, but enter politics, and I suspect uh, maybe that will happen if he's elected a second time around. But as you and I and everyone's watching what this pandemic has done, which is force every industry to pivot, change, and, and accommodate. I mean, we have a system that badly needs to be fixed, and we have parents who clearly want choice and are making choices now. Um, and you'll hear the arguments that school choice creates a two-tier system that will leave kids behind. But if ever there were an opportunity to give the unions those 15 kids per classroom that they want, this would do it while giving other parents a choice uh, to decide what best education is for their children. Yes, indeed. We could modify the equity education tax credit to find all kinds of alternative education, not just independent schools, but also appropriately approved school pods, as you mentioned, and homeschooling opportunities, and so on and so forth. So we could considerably expand the kind of educational opportunities covered. One thing the pandemic has shown us very clearly, though, is that schools are important. Mm -hmm. Having a safe place to send your kids every day where they can receive good professional attention is important. But it's also important for parents to be able to have some say, I believe, in what that school should be like. And if their local public school is not very responsive, responsive to their concerns and they believe is not doing as good a job as they would like to see done, then I think 
it makes obvious sense. They should have an opportunity. They should have the uh, uh, the government be prepared to help them choose an independent school yeah. of an appropriate kind. Now, now, don't forget, this two-tier system business is really just a complete load of malarkey. Uh, you can say we have a, two, a two-tier system now, mm-hmm. but it's only the rich that can afford the independent schools. Why can't ordinary folk also afford independent schools? Why can't they have a choice? In fact, what the current system does is discriminate against ordinary folk who are essentially prohibited from having the same opportunities as expensive, as people that can afford expensive independent schools have. And don't forget, uh, the quality of your public school is correlated with the cost of your house. Right. So we, right. Have, we have a range. You talk about two uh, two-tier school system, you have a range there also as well. And we could say a lot more about that. Well, but, maybe uh, it's I time. I mean, the, time. yeah, I mean, people love their human rights um, cases. So maybe it's time parents uh, take the issue to a human rights tribunal and let them weigh in well, on this. Because it's not going to work in Ontario because um, the uh, school choice, educational freedom, as it's come, as it's, as it's coming to be more completely uh, recognized or called as, uh, is not something which is enshrined in the Ontario Human Rights Act, mm. and neither is it recognized in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Mm. The United Nations Human Rights Committee already called Ontario on this issue and pointed out that supporting Roman Catholic separate schools and no other religious schools is a clear violation. And we go one step further and say it's a clear violation of the basic tenet of freedom of education too. But that didn't go anywhere. No, it's it's going to have to be a political act. And I don't see why the Ontario PCs continue to drag their feet up this. We're not just talking about the other five large provinces. We're talking about a majority of U.S. states and all European countries. They've embraced school choice. Six European countries have actually enshrined school choice in their constitutions. Ontario has just missed the bus for the last 40 years. It's about time we ran, caught up with it, and jumped on before it gets completely out of reach. I suggest that a second shutdown will cement it for parents, but I'm glad at least in 2020 we're starting to finally talk about it. Professor, I appreciate your thoughts on this and uh, you authoring this report, so I appreciate you weighing in. Yep, great. That is Professor Derek Allison uh, talking about something that, look, parents are talking about this already, and guess what? We're not asking permission. We're just doing it. So if the unions don't like it, too bad. This is going to be, I think, a reality moving forward. So the big topic of the day is kids returning to school, which is great for some. It'll give them a sense of normal, I guess, if that's what we can call it. But, you know, it isn't normal. Nothing is normal. Nothing since the shutdown has been normal. You know, schools are the places that we go because it's fun. There's freedom. You know, the kids can share with their friends. They can play or hang out. But now there are rules for everyone and for everything they do and every move they make. So for some kids, it's going to be scary. For some, I think it's going to be a sense of apocalyptic doom. For others, it's just going to remind them of how disrupted their lives have been and will be, I think, for months to come. 
And sure, kids are adaptable, but they are not unmalleable, meaning, you know, these disruptions, the things like isolation, the anxiety, the unknowns are in fact affecting them. The question is, we don't know how much and we don't know how long it's going to last and what you know, damage has been done long term. Avi Benlolo is a human rights activist and former CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies. And you wrote about this in particular in the National Post. Um, you know, it's interesting because you, you point out the trauma of the last few months, you know, the loss of friends, of social contact schedules, and basically having their lives totally destabilized. And I think it was hard enough on us as adults, but we don't really know how hard it has been on kids. Well, that's right. Firstly, thank you very much for having me on your show again. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And yes, I um, started doing some research about the impact on children because I have young children myself. And I saw over the course of the last six months the impact this has been having on them. And um, most of the research that I found was very nuanced, very speculative, and not particularly, uh, um, you know, done to the full scale as you would expect uh, research to be. So there's very little out there. And what we can surmise and what many of my doctor friends have said to me, and of course, I'm not a psychologist, but many of them have said to me is that there is a higher state of anxiety, of depression, um, and of just the lack of well-being in uh, youth uh, today and trepidation about going back to school. Yeah, and it doesn't help with all the politicking, whether it's the unions playing their ads, talking about how unsafe the schools are. It doesn't help, you know, that, that we're starting to see cases go up. My little guy is too too young to really understand what COVID-19 is. And I kind of go on the approach of if mommy's worried, then you worry, but I'm not worried. And that's how I've tried to broach it. But there's no question the impact has been real. It's been great. And my big fear is that we're going to go through another disruption, which again, takes them back to where we were in March. Well, that's right. And I think um, the expectation is that there will be another disruption. We should all expect that. And of course, you know, for schools, for people with, with children in schools, the question is, what will that mean for them? And so everyone has entered, you know, I dropped off my daughter at school this morning and it was with trepid trepidation. Mm -hmm. um, she didn't know what to expect um, going into the building and how things would be structured, how her class would be. And so there is that sense of anxiety. And then, of course, you know, why are we doing this? This is going to happen anyway in a couple of weeks, and we're all going to be sent home. So why are we doing this again? And so that those questions come up. The other, the other avenue of this whole thing is the anxiety. We're living in a different world uh, today than we were six months ago. You know, let's keep in mind that over the course of the last few months, there have been major shifts in society, demonstrations in the U.S. especially, and now we're seeing in Europe, in places like Belarus, where uh, there's social upheaval. And that has all translated into the social sphere that we're in. And the question, the big question for me is, how will that impact the curriculum today? How will teachers mm -hmm. adapt to the new language of, for example, of cancel culture? And mm -hmm. how, you know, how will that be transmitted to the students? Well, it's interesting you say that because already, um, you know, the TDSB is going to be training teachers on how to teach the kids about white fragility, which, you know, I think we have to be very, very careful with the conversation and who is having that conversation 
um, you know, it might not take us in the direction we want. It might end up being polarizing and more divisive. And frankly, I think uh, that's one of those conversations that parents should probably be, um, you know, invited so that they understand more of what their kids are going to be taught. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, we're, we're living kind of in a, in a new reformed era. And I don't think any of us really fully understand it or comprehend it and understand what, it's, what it means and how that will be translated into the education system. And um, it will be neat and interesting to see. And I know that many educators are going through retraining programs on sensitivity training, on compassionate training, anti-racism uh, training. And those are important facets of the new era that we're in. And that will add to the weight of how we deal with this through COVID. Yeah, and the other the other thing that we haven't, and I don't think we'll see it for 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 some months now, is is the economic hit. There are going to be an awful lot of families who are impacted economically, either through job loss or bankruptcy. Uh, that has an immediate impact on kids because they lose all sense of security, and if they don't have it in the schools, and and they don't have it. Um, you know, with their life and the structure of their life, and they don't have it at home, that is a, a world that no child um, wants to go through or, or can understand going through. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I engaged that in my article uh, today because, you know, it's kind of you're, you're, you're living in this climate of changing and shifting sands. And as a child, I mean, it's all about security, right? We, we all, we've all grown up into that understanding that the importance of security, you know, having a home and, you know, parents and people around you and, you know, institutions uh, taking care of you. But all of that has changed. Everything has changed. And, you know, parents might be unemployed or parents might, might you know, they, they might be working from home. Well, what does that, all that mean for me? And parents, you know, and, 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 and schools are opening and closing and everything seems to be changing. I can see my grandparents. I can't see my grandparents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do I go to university? I go, you know, I, I, I go to university, but I'm in my dorm online because I can't go to lecture halls. Everything that we kind of have known is no longer there. And it's scary for many of them. It's scary for the parents, too, I think. Yeah, and, and I agree. I mean, um, you know, the things that used to be, you know, on days like today, the, the back to school story would be like kids rushing into school and, uh, you know, school buses getting lost and late. Those would be the headlines. The headlines right. now are not going to be that. They're all going to be about COVID and cases breaking out and fears. And uh, that is my concern is that, you know, we get them into school. We're going to be shut down again. And maybe it's time that the government start managing our expectations and giving us some hard truths and realities so that we can prepare kids uh, for what is to come. Uh, yeah, and absolutely. And, and we also have to give kids hope. Um, you know, they have to be hopeful that, you know, they're going to school, that it's going to end up in their success, that they're going to achieve whatever their dreams are, and that they have a future. And I think that that's, that's important, giving them that security that there is a future. And, um, you know, that's up to government as much to translate and to mitigate that, that fear and to parents and to the education system to give uh, the kids uh, the feeling that they will be successful and that this will end. Yeah, well, let's hope sooner rather than later. It's a fascinating article, uh, Avi, and I do appreciate you joining us. Thank you. 
Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you again for having me. That is uh, Avi Benlolo, and the ar- the article is in the National Post and asks an interesting question about the long-term implications of COVID-19 with our kids. And just to the point about family, you know, we had to tell our, our little guy that he won't be able to see his grandmother now for possibly months, and they are very close. And he is not at all happy because that's something that is like, it's a bond. Nonetheless, we'll continue to follow it. If your kid is on TikTok, then you may actually want to keep an eye on um, what they are watching because the app is actually struggling to get rid of footage showing a man who committed suicide and streamed that live on Facebook. And then, of course, it was shared on Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok cannot get the clips off. So it's kind of like a game of whack-a-mole. It comes down, it goes back up. And because TikTok tends to play to a, a younger user, we've got kids as young as seven or eight being confronted by visuals of someone, you know, blowing their brains out and they're not prepared for it. Paul Dave is joining me. He is, of course, the social networking safety guy who we have on. Good to have you, Paul. Thank you, Alex. You actually alerted me to this and then I saw the headlines and I think, you know, how is it that 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 these sites don't have control of this? It's not the first time that we've seen either this kind of incident or a crime play out where it's live streamed. But why don't they have more um, measures in place to be able to stop that? Well, first of all, uh, I'm an optimist and a realist at the same time. And the reality is this is not the first and it definitely won't be the last time it will happen. And the reason is to your question is because you have billions of users, but you have thousands of employees. So human eyes aren't catching it, so they rely on artificial intelligence. The problem is artificial intelligence has to learn what to remove. That takes a little bit of time. Once artificial intelligence catches up to what needs to automatically be removed, it will remove the video, and they think the problem is solved. Well, it keeps getting re-uploaded over and over again. And then the the uploaders become creative. So what's happening now is, even though it's been taken down and re-uploaded, it's being re-uploaded under different hashtags, mm-hmm. and it's being spliced into videos. For example, a child is watching uh, a video of a cat, and three seconds into it, they see the suicide. So now artificial intelligence has to re-engineer itself to understand, okay, wait a minute. We don't have to look, can't just look at the beginning. We have to look at the whole clip. This takes time. So this will have its 15 minutes of fame and get rid of itself probably in about a week or so, maybe two weeks. Except the next time it happens, we're going to start this all over again. So these videos do exist on the web. I can give you three websites where you can find them on a regular basis. The problem is they're being ported from those websites and they're being put up now into social media because of the shock value. So this started off on Facebook. And remember, the Internet never forgets. So if you're streaming something, someone has a copy of it. So obviously it was captured, downloaded, and then, you know, because they thought it was funny, let's upload it to social media and let's just generate some shock value. Now, the problem is, as you stated in the preamble to this, we have kids that are not old enough to be on these platforms because parents thought it was cute who are now being exposed to it. It's not that they haven't been, they haven't even seen this in terms of, you know, at an age where they're desensitized because of a movie. This is real life. These kids are scarred. And when parents reach out for help, Parents have to take a hard, long look in the mirror that they allowed this to happen because the companies can't stop it. So it's up to parents to take responsibility to say, you know what, you're not old enough. I don't want you on there because of the risks. And in this case, this is a heavy price to pay for some of these kids. And I feel really, really bad for them. 
Yeah. I mean, look, my kid asks all the time, can I be on TikTok? Absolutely not. I mean, I'm the worst mother ever. I, I just I just won't let it happen as, as long as I can um, because I know about these kinds of things. Um, and again, they're not mature enough to, to, to understand what's going on because it's not sanitized. It's not at all like watching a Hollywood movie. I mean, these are really gory and grim uh, images that, that are being passed around. And then once you see them, there is a very macabre kind of following that will say, that's cool. Let's see this one. And you, you get the copycat effect. And the, like I said, it won't be the first. It's not the first and it definitely won't be the last. So this will happen. And, you know, we can go back to other videos that have occurred. It will stream again. It will be captured. It will be retransmitted. And then the worst part is, that they, you know, kids are the best viral marketers in the world, right? So for this reason that I'm, I'm still not familiar with, they will sh talk to each other about it. And then their curiosity, which I can't fault anybody for, because obviously people are curious. They may want to see it, not expecting it. You know, one of the parents on my Facebook page said her 16-year-old daughter saw it because TikTok threw it on what's called their For You page, meaning through their algorithm algorithms, it made an assumption that this particular 16-year-old girl wanted to see this because her friends may have watched it or may have liked it. She said, my 16-year-old daughter stayed up all night. She wasn't, she wasn't prepared for it. She didn't ask for it. And now at 16, she's scarred. I can't imagine the effect it will have on someone younger, but they will talk about it, which means the word of mouth is going to get out there, and they're going to look it up in any yeah. capacity. And if they have a copy of it, and here's the thing. Okay, Alex, TikTok, Instagram, everyone removes it. Well, it's still out there. So now they're going to share it in WhatsApp groups. They're going to mm -hmm. share it through private messengers. It's, it's out there. It's been saved. And it will keep recirculating because the word delete is a myth. And that not is to, a concern. Yeah, and not to mention what it does to the to, to the loved ones of, of the person. I mean, this is what they have to live with. They've got a, a loved one who's decided to take their life, and and now it's living in infamy and all over the web as uh, entertainment. It's uh, It just compounds yeah. already a very painful situation. Will we ever have AI that can instantly, I mean, are we even close to being able to get rid of this stuff? I don't think we're close. Will it eventually happen? I think it will catch up where it'll be smart enough to figure it out. In fact, the, the, the technology is in place right now. It has to be trained. And can it be done instantaneously? Well, again, when you have billions of users uploading billions of videos and pictures by the minute, I don't think we have the technology there yet that it could instantaneously. It will come down, actually, in most cases, within 30 seconds to 60 seconds if trained properly. But if it's up there... And it's shared once. Someone has a copy. And so now using bot accounts, fake accounts, yeah. it just keeps going up in different capacities. And that's where AI has to retrain itself to figure out and remove it. But the reality is it's, well, it will be up there. Even if it's for a minute, it will be up there. Thanks for the heads up, Paul. Appreciate your insight. Thank you. My pleasure. That's Paul Davis with the uh, Social Networking Safety. And, and again, so if your kid's on TikTok, just know that that video's out there and it could show up any which way for your child. And um, it's not something that they want to see. That is your podcast for today. Of course, you can listen to us on point Monday through Friday, live 630 to 10. I'll do it again. I'm Alex Pearson.